Rich Moraz talks about the things that still hurt, even today. During that time, did you ever have any officers shot, uh, officers killed? Yes, I did. Uh, Gut-wrenching. I still think about some of that stuff. Um, That's one thing that, you know, my son's a cop, Michael. I worry to hell to death about him. But I'm close to him. I make sure that uh, he's got his head screwed on straight. I talk about uh, maybe cultural changes. I start to see creep up on him where he starts to get fed up. Um, Where he, during dinner, will tell me, Dad, I am so damn frustrated. Get calls. He works Hollenbach Division. A lot of gangs there where he'll tell me, you know, I get out of a black and white sometimes. There's people in every corner. And then when we show up, everybody's got a cell phone in front of their face following us. Welcome to Game of Crimes. So it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It, it, it happens incrementally. And uh, and I generally will take Ralph Al Perez and Nino Jordan as an example of that and 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 go down because I'm doing it in retrospect, actually. And and you asked me how did it all blow up? And 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 they they were in the heart and soul of the particular Ralph Al Perez. Uh, so if you want me to take the time just a little bit, I can I can give you a reader digest version of how. Yeah, got I mean, to that point. Because I think it's important for people to realize is that this, like you say, you don't wake up one morning, flip a switch and go, oh, here's what I'm going to do. It happens over time in small incremental steps. And you look from one day to the next, you don't see the change. It's like, you know, the equivalent of like, you got nieces and nephews and stuff. If you haven't seen a niece or a nephew for two years and you see them, you go, oh my God, how you've grown. But if you're with them every day, you don't notice the change. But in two years, they've grown. Well, exactly. and you also... Exactly. In the, in the law enforcement culture, especially the older cultures, maybe not so much today, but I think it still exists, there's this unspoken rule that you protect each other. You don't route at your brother police officer. Well, you know, that's what, that's what separates the good guys from the bad guys. When you're condoning, knowingly condoning any criminal activity, you know, you're no, you're no better than the criminals that are out there. You've just destroyed the, the public trust in you. You can't step over that line and, you know, I know what you're talking about, where the community is supporting you, wanting you to take care of the problem. They'll turn their head, but that's not what we do here. No. You know, those acts of omission and those rationalization of way of responsibility, those making excuses because people don't understand us, mm-hmm. um, that's the worst. That's that's turning up the heat on that boiling pot of water till it all blows up. Right. Um, there, there's a book I recommend for people to read, and it's called um, Emotional Survival by Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. And in that book, it describes the roller coaster ride that that young cops go through as they start to face all the negative stuff that they have to deal with and get overwhelmed. Um, the hypervigilance aspect that they go through, and and part of what Dr. Gil Martin talks about is the continuum of compromise. And um, and in fact, there's an article that he and another author put together. It's about three, a little less than five pages. And it's the the frog in the boiling water, and it goes to the heart of what I dealt with, and how I got involved with Rampart. Um, 
emotional survival, a continuum of compromise. That's, that's, that's exactly it right there. Yeah. And this one was called emotional survival for law enforcement. This is a guide for their families. And that, what you're talking about was kind of the companion one, because this really gets into dealing officers, you know, suicide is the number one killer of cops. And, but it's that stress, it's these things, you know, it just, when you said that, it's like, I've got five of these books. I've already sent one of them out to one of our guests. And I hand these out to cops because to your point, we don't know what we don't know. And it takes years. You, you, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. You can't connect the dots looking forwards. And so these retrospectives like you're talking about are so important so we can recognize in the future when it happens. That's a very, very good point, looking backwards. You know, and, 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 and that book, that one you just showed me is the revised edition. The revised edition uh, included more of the continuum of compromise. And, and so... In terms of looking at the continuum of compromise, when I first looked at that study, and like I said before, it's less than four pages, it hit me right between the eyes because when I looked at it, I looked at it through the lens of that's rampart. That's what I dealt with. That's what I what I failed to deal with. And and uh, and and I mentioned earlier the legitimacy crisis that law enforcement is facing today. We're going through a. It started August 9, two thousand fourteen, from my perspective, Ferguson. When Ferguson hit, the legitimacy crisis of law enforcement was manifest in disruption, demonstrations, things of that nature. It seemed like just as we were going to come out of it, uh, the pandemic not only hit, but May 25th, 2020 hit, as far as I'm concerned. And now, um, you know, I'm talking about the, 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 the second aspect that we dealt with. As a result of that, I think that today there's a lot of young cops in the street that are demoralized. Uh, they're disengaging. They're depolicing. They're forming an attitude. If they don't care, I don't care. And they're just backing away from the responsibility. Mm -hmm. The continuum of compromise threat is alive and well in that type of an environment. The way Dr. Gilmartin breaks it down, uh, and it's the frog in the boiling pot of water that I said before, it doesn't happen. There's a continuum to that compromise. And it breaks it down into three parts. Reader Digest version description of that. The first starts by what he calls uh, acts of omission. Acts of omission aren't doing things wrong. Acts of omission aren't doing things right. It's not a violation of policy and procedure. It's not something that you physically or behaviorally do. It's in the mind and in the heart. It's, not, it's lowering a personal standard. It's taking a step back. And for a police officer, it could be as simple as I see a car go through a red light. I'm not going to stop them. I'm going to de-police. I'm going to disengage. I'm not going to get my neck chopped off for making an honest mistake. And it's usually manifest in a lack of production where cops start backing off. Um, and uh, it's not going to get days off. It's not a violation of policy. It's not going to get your wrist slapped. It's just a mindset that starts to manifest of uh, disengaging, depolicing, and being demoralized. And if they don't care, I don't care, it's not just the community, it's their own ranks within their own agencies. It could be their chief of police, it could be sergeants, it could be lieutenants that just don't care that it become political. Um, and if nobody intervenes, by that I mean either a supervisor or a partner and say, let's talk about it, it progresses in, or a continuum to the next phase and that, is described by Dr. Gil Martin as acts of commission administrative. It's not going to get you fired, but it's now minor violations of policy and procedure, unauthorized code three, 
unauthorized weapons, working without a work permit, um, uh, being late to work, looking sloppy. Uh, again, it's this whole demoralization aspect that's going to wind up getting officers disciplined. And again, if nobody loves enough to intervene and say, hey, what's going on? Let's talk about it. It goes to the third aspect of it, and that's acts of commission criminal rampart. Could be as simple as, you know, I've worked so much overtime. I'm so fed up. I haven't put in for half the time. The department owes me. I'm taking an extra hour of overtime. That's theft. It'll probably get you fired on LAPD. Or I'm going to keep this souvenir of this criminal gangbang where I put in jail. I'm going to throw it in my war bank. I'm going to show my friends what I have to put up with in the streets of L.A. That's also theft. DUIs, domestic violence. And when it all blows up, it's it's my best uh, interpretation of how this continuum of compromise happens. And it also is supervision where sergeants start to back up acts of omission and not dealing with issues that they see happening. Hey, Rich, you hit upon a key thing right there, because there's a documentary out now, too. I think it's called 137 Shots. It's about the shooting in Cleveland. But, I mean, the one thing that struck me about that, and you hit upon it, it's it's the tone set by the sergeants and the supervisors, who's ever a leader. If they allow it to go on, then people pile on. They say, do it. But in this one chase, they're they're chasing one car. Initially, somebody thought they said, well, they thought there were shots fired, but it was the car backfiring. But I think at one point, there's like 40 cars involved in this. And it's like, I mean, that that just sets the stage for failure because now it is uncontrollable. You don't have the ability to manage the situation, what's going on. I mean, why why would super, I mean, as you're talking about that, what is it that's going on with some of these supervisors to where they don't step up and control this situation and say, guys, sorry, end you're off. Two cars on this pursuit, that's it. Everybody else, you're done. Right. Moral imperative. And, and I think, again, it goes back into ethics and training and virtue and who am I and what do I stand for and what is my responsibility? And do I, and it goes, I talk a lot about love, love leadership, servant leadership. You know, love leadership, a servant leader is a person that thinks less of themselves and they think more of who they're responsible for. When I was at Rampart, my three years, I cared a lot. I cared a hell of a lot. I was known as the caring captain. You know what the mistake was I made? I didn't love enough. A lot of it was what's in it for me. What's this going to make me look like? What are you going to think about me? I want you to think I'm the best captain, lieutenant, sergeant, partner you ever worked with. That works against us because we're part of it is we're not taking responsibility. We're not taking responsibility for, my, for our own self-esteem. I know I'm getting tactical here that when you take responsibility for your own self-esteem, when you realize your responsibility, and I'm taking rank out of this, leadership is not just titles. Yeah, you leadership can be, a, you can be an informal leader on your squad, you know, or in right. the an informal patrol officer who's a leader. I mean, somebody who has a leadership position. Somebody who lives virtue. The lowest ranking individual in a squad could be the true leader because he or she has the moral imperative and loves enough to stand up, be willing to get their head chopped off, but says what needs to be said. Um, we gravitate towards those people. Uh, sometimes we call on them for advice before we call the sergeant who has the stripes. Um, so, so if this is all about virtue and leadership and 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 moral integrity, uh, and we don't do a real good job, unfortunately, in law enforcement, as far as I'm concerned, in having those conversations and reaching that point. And, and as a result, we hold back, and people know that, and they will pick and choose when they cross the line. Uh, had a had a uh, incident. It's called the Hollywood Burglars in LAPD that happened several years ago. Um, and these were 
This was a burglary team on a morning watch that would respond to burglar alarms. That was their sole function. And they reached a point that team did where they crossed the line and they would actually use marbles on slingshots to break windows to set the alarm off for the radio call that they would get because they were usually the first team on the scene. They would secure the location. As the sergeant and the supervisor showed up, they'd say, hey, we got it. We call the owner. He'll be here in about 45 minutes. We'll sit outside or we'll sit inside. We'll make sure nobody messes with it. That's their job. Everybody go back to patrol. And eventually they crossed the line where they started during that interim, put in their trunks of their black and white, uh, some of the items that were in that pawn shop or whatever the store happened to possess. And it exacerbated to a point where it all blew up and they were taken down as long as well as officers that realized it was happening. They weren't doing it, but they could get a really good deal on a VCR, whatever the case happened to be. That was called the Hollywood scandal. Uh, Research it, Google it. But the part I'm trying to make is that the interesting thing we found out is that there were certain nights they wouldn't do that stuff. They told the line. And that was because a certain sergeant was on duty. That sergeant cared, was visible, present, accessible. Um, They made sure that when that sergeant worked, they kept their nose clean. Hmm. Uh, And therein lies the leadership that I'm talking about that we have to have leaders, particularly sergeant leaders, who love enough, care enough, they're visible, they're present, they're accessible, they ask the questions, they follow their gut, they sit down with their people, they make them toe the line. Um, It's all related, it's all related to ethics. The mistake I made with Rampart is I wasn't enough of that. to look there, to see it, right? I made excuses for my people even. You know, people don't understand what we're going through. There's violence on the street. These gangs are killing each other. Cops are risking their neck and blah, 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 blah. During that time, did you ever have any officers shot, uh, officers killed? Yes, I did. Uh, Gut-wrenching. That's not... I still think about some of that stuff. Um, that's one thing that, you know, my son's a cop, Michael, I worried a hell to death about him, but I'm close to him. I make sure that, uh, he's got his head screwed on straight. I talk about, uh, maybe cultural changes. I start to see creep up on him where he starts to get fed up. Um, where he during dinner will tell me, dad, I am so damn frustrated. Get calls. He works Hollenbeck division, a lot of gangs there where he'll tell me, you know, I get out of a black and white sometimes. There's people in every corner. And then when we show up, everybody's got a cell phone in front of their face following us. Um, you know, they just want to see what they can videotape. And I'll tell him, I said, Mijo, you have no control over that. No control whatsoever as to what they're going to videotape. The only control you have is how they're going to, how you're going to handle that radio call and make sure that they videotape some of the best police work they're ever going to see. That's all you have control over. That's all you should think about. Do your job. Don't take a step back. Police work can get pretty ugly sometimes, but just make sure you do the right thing. Um, And I monitor that because I feel very strongly about that. So it's all about ethics. It's all about virtue. It's all about each law enforcement officer looking at themselves in the mirror and say, who am I? What do I stand for? 
Um, we didn't do enough of that at Rampart, collectively, individually, and um, that's part of the reason it blew up. Let's talk about the blowing up. Uh, walk us into that. Okay, and, and let me use Rafael Perez and Nino Durden because uh, they're a perfect example of this. Uh, they're the ones that really took the hard hit. And I will uh, tell you too, Rich, Murph and I reviewed that uh, for one of our Patreon episodes. Um, we do our Narcometer. Well, we reviewed Training Day, but I will tell you, based on your description during our pre-call and the research I did and stuff, the one thing they seemed to get accurate was this relationship between the two in terms of one is this one who's crossed the line, the other one is this brand new person who has very serious moral decisions to make basically on their very first day. Yeah. And, 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 of, and of course, the, you know, and, and you throw that into um, that frog in the environment of a violent uh, atmosphere, it manifests even stronger. So, so let me go back to uh, just the two of them. And of course, Training Day went away out into left field. I've never, I've never, there's been about eight different movies that have been, that have had a thread of Rampart that have run through it. The latest is a Netflix, it's called City of Lies. And it's, it's, it's based on Detective Russell Poole and his interpretation of what happened. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of that. I know I speak for a lot of veteran detectives that were part of the Rampart Task Force that physically, personally worked with him. Unfortunately, you know, Russell Poole passed away. They have their own opinion of them. But again, it's a lot of that is Hollywood. Uh, but there's seven different movies that have been, eight different movies that have been made about Rampart. Uh, but going back to the background, um, I worked with a veteran captain. His name was Nick Salikos. Um, when I got assigned to Rampart, I was told right off the bat that there were issues, that uh, uh, there was a lot of crime. They knew I didn't have a lot of patrol experience. Nick would mentor me, help uh, bring me up to speed. Uh, there was no indication of anything corrupt that was going on, but uh, it just had crime was up, arrests were down, morale was in the gutter, and part of my marching orders, so, so to speak, was to love those cops, uh, put up the company back together again, and just learn and run the command. So I hit the ground running from that standpoint, and, and Nick helped me uh, get through that. So along the way, I had the crash unit, a direct report to myself, and I also had patrol. I had a lot of assets. I was a terrible time manager, so I was over my head, uh, and I, was, I didn't manage my time effectively. But I made uh, quite a few mistakes. And, one of the, and so as far as Rafael Perez and Nino Jordan was concerned, uh, they both worked the crash unit. They both were partners. Uh, Perez had a work ethic that made him very popular. He got along with everybody. Everybody wanted to work with Rafael Perez. He was born in Puerto Rico. He was harassed by street gangs in Philadelphia. He vowed that uh, he wanted to be a cop. He saw how Philadelphia PD dealt with some of these street gangs. He made up his mind, A, I want to be a cop, B, I want to work gangs. Uh, he was a U.S. Uh, he's a Marine. Uh, he, four years, honorable discharge, joined LAPD. Uh, depending on what articles you'll read, you'll read that he uh, failed the background. He was forced down our throats. That was not true. Uh, he eventually worked his way to Rampart Division and got into the crash unit, uh, put there by my predecessor that I replaced about two months after, uh, uh, I'm sorry, almost on the same day that I arrived, as my predecessor was going out, I was coming in. He was already coming in the division assigned to crash the McGang unit, and I would change that. Nino Dearden, on the other hand, uh, came to Rampart Division from 77. 
low-key, a yes sir, no sir type of guy, very popular. Everybody wanted to work with him. He eventually got into the crash unit as well. Both of them worked together. Um, Nino Jordan, Rafael Perez wound up rolling over a year after he was uh, removed from LAPD uh, and he exposed everything that he had done. Nino Jordan did the same thing a year later, substantiated everything that Perez said that the two of them have done. So we have on record both their versions in parallel to what they did, how it happened, and one pretty much substantiates the other in terms of what they both personally did. The only difference is, is that a lot of what Perez said other officers did, which was later to be found to be false, did not parallel what Nino Durden said. He kept out of that. He said, I have nothing to say about that. What they both say is that prior to coming to Rampart, they told the line. They followed policy and procedure. Once they got into all the violence and the hurt and the temptation and death row records, they slowly but incrementally crossed the line. They would both say that it happened initially in a legitimate use of force arrest that they tried to conduct on an 18th Street gang member. He fought them. They wound up going on the ground with him. They had a foot pursuit. They caught him. They cuffed him. Perez had had it, he said, about up to this point, and he applied some street justice. A couple of knees, a couple of punches, uh, cuffed this guy, put his nose to the ground, and said, do not run from Rampart Crash. You do that, you're going to get the same treatment. Tell your friends that. Um, he lost sleep over it, he actually said that night, because he a use of force report was done by a sergeant, which is always happens on LAPD. Uh, his fear was this kid was going to make a complaint. Were there witnesses? Was there a camera? Would the sergeant tap me on the shoulder um, a few days later, ask me about that use of force report? And uh, it had been drilled in his mind in the academy that he realized, as far as he was concerned, he gave false and misleading statements to a supervisor on a police report that can get you fired, that can send you to a board of rights. That never happened. Nobody tapped him on the shoulder. This kid did not make a complaint. That escalated into them doing that a few more times. They rationalized the success of that by actually looking at studies that showed that gang members were running less and less away from crash. They were still running from patrol, but foot pursuits were starting to drop. That escalated into fabrication of probable cause. They put cases on people, particularly after some gut-wrenching incident would occur, i.e., Mom getting shot in her own living room by a gang. Uh, what gang was that? Who called that shot? We're going to kick that individual off the street. So they started to put cases on people. Um, fabrication of probable cause. They felt comfort, confident that they could get away with that because most gang members that were arrested, particularly from crash, copped out. The reason they copped out all along the line is they feared the wrath that they would face when they came back to their world and had to face crash officers that would threaten them uh, or give them a bad time. You dare to plead not guilty. You took me from my home, from my kids, from my wife to testify against you. So they were reluctant to plead not guilty, but some did. So now the perjury, the perjury uh, uh, aspect rose its ugly head. Perez and Jordan would testify as to their fabrication or probable cause. And that, right about that point, there was no going back. 
They rationalized it in that they were doing the noble cause. They weren't doing it to the God-fearing, uh, abiding uh, people of Rampart. They were doing it to criminals who were getting away with murder. Um, and in fact, the community was whispering in our ears to do that. So we went from fabrication of probable cause to throwdowns to holding back evidence um, to subsequently uh, an, uh, an un, uh, unauthorized illegal um, shot, shooting of an 18th Street gang member by the name of Javier Ovando. So that's a whole different story. So there, so it's it's happening incrementally. They're going deeper and deeper into what I call the dark side, uh, based on how they're trying to control gang crime. Hey, Rich, real quick, I want to take you back. You, you mentioned something interesting. You said that a uh, couple things I want to ask about. You said that uh, the gangbangers would run from patrol, but not from crash. It got to be that point. Why was that? Were they afraid that if they ran from crash, they would get a beating? It would There would be something bad happen to them? Yes. That that getting arrested, but gang members themselves would say, if I'm going to get arrested, I hope a patrol cop arrests me, not a crash officer. Uh, they would also say, I hope it's uh, uh, sheriffs, not LAPD in Rampart. So there was all these these cultures, these rumors, right? You know, it's not 100 percent, but for the most part. So so most, um, especially 18th Street in Monticello, Trucha, if they got arrested by a crash officer, generally, whether it was legitimate or not, they would cop out because they had to come back to their world. And their world was about a four or five block radius to go east, west, north or south. They were actually they were automatically in another gang's territory. They were born there. They were raised there. As far as they were concerned, they were going to die there. The only way to get themselves out of there was to move out of there, far away, and uh, Lancaster, Utah. And many did. They left. They actually left Rampart and moved far into the L.A. County area just to get away from crash. Um, that's not to say that every crash officer would right. actually cross that line, but that was the mindset and the culture that Perez and, and Dearden took advantage of when they did their machinations unbeknownst to lieutenants and sergeants and the command staff at Rampart. Hey, the other thing I want to ask you about is how did uh, Perez go through the process of corrupting his partner? I mean, I, I think you said it and maybe it was, I don't want to confuse it with the movie, but it almost started like with this first day and drinking a beer, right? Yeah. And, and they, they did it, uh, you know, Nino Jordan and, and um, you know, good cop, good heart, uh, wanted to promote, uh, very, very popular. Uh, but then uh, we talked about culture earlier and how culture plays a role in this. And uh, and, and Perez and Jordan took advantage of that culture, by the way, to put cops in compromising positions in case you ever get, you accuse me of misconduct, I'm going to put you in a situation where I got something on you that you're going to take a harder hit if we both go down. So Nino Jordan, uh, by getting into crash, both of them, knew because of all the violence and gang violence in a division like Rampart, that if you were crash for about one, maybe even two years, you're going to become so experienced, so tactically proficient, so uh, able to handle high stress, that it's going to put you in the fast lane of the feeder pool to get into just about any specialized division on LAPD once there's an opening. So getting into crash alone is a feather, is a big feather in your cap. So when Nino Jernan got selected to work crash, he would was quoted as saying, 
I made it to the top. It was the cream of the crop. It was better than making sergeant. He knew, and he would later say, there, there was a watering hole of all crash officers throughout the city that would go to a bar called the shortstop. It was right near Dodger Stadium. Um, it was known as a police hangout. It was known as a crash hangout from cops throughout the city. And it was a place where a lot of fun would be had. A lot of war stories would be told. And Nino Jordan said that when he would walk into the shortstop bar and they found out he worked Rampart Crash, he would have an immediate audience. He said, I had the best war stories to tell than anybody in that bar. And he loved it. Um, but he also knew that he, he was in a position where it was going to really help his future. So that was part of, part of, the, part of the aspect of it. Uh, and again, again, culture plays a big role in this aspect. So when Durden and, and Perez, they, be, they became partners. They were teamed up. And they slowly but incrementally crossed the line. Uh, as I said before, Nino Jordan went along uh, along with it. He wasn't the, like the reluctant one. They rationalized their way together. I think Training Day uh, exaggerates that, and they paint the Nino Jordan version of that as his being less naive or less reluctant to go along with it. They both went along with it side by side. When they when they when they were caught up with, I think Perez had a tendency to exaggerate on the number of cops that crossed the line more than Nino Jordan did. But they both crossed that line and they crossed it big time twice. Once when they arrested a big time drug dealer and they actually went along with the program of becoming drug dealers. And another time when they got involved in the Avando shooting um, that played a key role in how far they were willing to cross the line once that shooting occurred. In, in your opinion, so what is the percentage of, of crash members that were involved in illegal activities? Um, when the investigation started, the crash investigation, I, I think that a lot of people, and that goes all the way to the district attorney's office, chief of police, Gil Garcetti, who was the DA, uh, it, it did not go in the direction they thought that it was going to go in where there was going to be a big expose of a lot of rampart cops and beyond in other divisions as well, hot divisions like 77th Southeast that had their own crash officers, who Perez said when he was interviewed, 90% of the crash officers in LAPD are dirty. He said that they ran with it, turned out to be false. When it was all said and done, 98% of the officers at rampart were, were, were clean, and they didn't, or let's put it this way. Many of them, they, there was no proof of, of, uh, of uh, misconduct, of doing the stuff that Perez, Jordan, and a handful of them did, uh, perjury, excessive use of force, throwdowns, uh, short of selling drugs, which Perez and Jordan did. So it was, it was less, it was 2%. Rich Moraz's opinion, that's 2% too many. Mm-hmm. That's way too many. 500 cops, 2%. Uh, you know, we're still talking about close to 30. So to me, that's still too many, the atrocities that they did. When you back away from that and you start to wonder how many rationalized away what they suspected, their gut feeling, maybe what they saw, uh, it gets even worse that we start uh, 
not t- not doing the responsible thing, and and uh, we don't take care of each other. That we help actually turn that flame up. Uh, you know, I'll lament, I'll lament, time and time again, and I'll get emotional when I think about it. That I wish I could go back to Rampart. Uh, you have no idea how much I wish I could go back to Rampart, but life doesn't work that way, right? Uh, we can't turn the clock back. Uh, you could probably think of a handful of things in your own life that you wish you could go back, but you can't. Mm-hmm. But when I lament that I wish I could go back to Rampart, I don't lament that I want to go back into the dark side because that's easy to deal with. I don't even know what the dark side looked like. I think that if you could be involved in it, not even realize you're involved in it. Uh, and that's easy to deal with. When you get in a midst and you realize that cops are putting the boots to somebody, committing perjury, uh, planting dope on them, hell, you're going to push me out of the way to deal with them. Most cops will do that. They're not going to allow that to happen. When I lament that I wish I could go back to Rampart, it's to revisit every moment of truth, discretionary moment where I suspected something, gut feeling, that I kissed off, that I looked the other way. It's no big deal. It's an aberration. I got bigger fish to fry. I'll deal with it next time. Um, I'm the captain. Hell, I'm so far removed from that. How am I supposed to know everything that's going on? Um, I want you to like me. That's the other rationalization, you know, that uh, I want you to think I'm the best, as I said before. Uh, So when I say I wish I could go back to Rampart, it's to revisit every single discretionary moment that we all do where we kiss it off and we look the other way and we rationalize away our responsibility. If I could revisit and do each of those and the impact it would have on those that I'm connected to, there is absolutely no question in my mind that Rampart would have a different ending. And I say this without making excuses for myself. You know, sometimes people say to me afterwards, you're too hard on yourself, Rich. You were the captain. You're too far removed from everything. How are you supposed to know what goes on in a black and white? And I don't buy that. It happened on my watch. It happened while I was there. And I dropped the ball. If I could go back to Rampart, there is absolutely no question in my mind that would have a different ending. Perez and Jordan might still wind up in jail, but it would have a different ending. Well, go ahead, Steve. You go first. Yeah. It sounds like those two ended up right where they needed to be because they were really involved. And I mean, they were, it's, it's not more than, it's much more than just street justice. Nothing of that is right. But when you're going in the evidence room and stealing cocaine and you know oh, you're participating yeah. In, yeah. in armed robberies and and maimings and uh, brutal assaults and possibly murder, what became a way of life for them? I mean, that they had their they did not know what the boundaries were anymore. Um, right. Where you and I, I mean, my wife's Catholic. She gets guilty if we, you know, if I go five miles an hour over the speed limit. But you know, <laughs> but we've lost that kind of sense of perspective, and that's what. The danger with officers, you're right. It's like um, we just had a great discussion with uh, Jay Dobbins. He was worked undercover for ATF. Uh, was Jay Bird, uh, you know, infiltrated the Hell's Angels, and you know that was the thing he talked about. It, when especially when you work undercover, it's that how do you keep that fine line between doing the public good, dancing near the edge, but not going over the edge? And new officers find it very hard, I think. Um, but you know. Uh, 
you know, rant aside, I wanted to get back and ask you, Rich, this thing eventually blew up. What was the what was the outcome of it? So, I mean, you get caught up in it. Um, they start investigation. So now give us the big picture. What happens when this thing hits the fan, mm-hmm. it hits the press and it starts going? OK, and let, and let me uh, add just two real quick points what Perez and Durden did. Um, that, that that's important. And, and again, it brings in Nino Durden. Uh, it, it puts a, um, uh, uh, I, I guess it puts a, a, a stop on a movie like Training Day that would portray one as strong and the other as weak. And they, they, they both consciously, deliberately crossed the line together. Um, and sometimes people will even make excuses for Nino Durden. You know, Perez was stronger and, and I don't buy any of that. Um, so, so they, they got involved in, uh, uh, arresting a big time drug dealer. They brought him to Rampart station. They put him in the holding tank. Uh, they were, they, they were actually loaned to the a narcotic unit that worked out of trailers in the parking lot at Rampart. Um, it was kind of a feather in their cap. Um, uh, and, and they had already did a lot of their machinations in terms of, of, of what they were doing, planting perjury and things of that nature, but not, they hadn't really crossed the line big time yet. And, um, and, and what they did is they arrested a big time drug dealer, they brought him to the station, put him in the holding tank. In front of them is all his dope, his cocaine, wads of money, his pager, and they're booking some of the stuff. And they had already taken some of the narcotic little packages to hide in their war bag for throwdown purposes when they get, wanted to get some of these third strikers or shot callers off mm-hmm. the street and enhance uh, their arrest report. When the pager went off and they, responded to the pager call. They talked to a guy in the streets of Rampart who did not know what the dealer looked like, but wanted to make a huge cocaine buy. So they decided, like most narcotic cops do, is they're going to act like they're the dealer. They're going to meet up with this guy in the street. They're going to do the transaction. Then they're going to bring him in as well, kind of like a setup. Uh, And they arranged for all of that. So as they're driving to meet this guy that wants to make this drug buy, Perez would later say that Durden suggested it. Durden, when he was questioned about it, said, no, no, Perez suggested it. The suggestion was that what if we meet this guy in a licensed area, there's nobody around. Uh, We do the exchange. He wants to buy a lot of dope and we let him walk. We don't bring him in. And they joked about it. And when they wound up meeting this guy in the street, he was alone. It was a dark area. Uh, It was an isolated area. They did the exchange. The guy turned, walked away. And they let them walk. And they got back in their unmarked car, drove back to Rampart Station, and they would say something to the effect, man, that was easy. They now are drug dealers. They crossed mm-hmm. that line. Mm-hmm. They went back to Rampart Station, put the fear of God in the guy in the holding tank, told him, we're going to book your dope, your money, and your pager. If we ever see your face in Rampart, we're going to throw this case at you. Rampart Task Force was never able to find out or catch up with who this guy was. But we do know that over the next four days, Individually and collectively, they stole the rest of the narcotics to the same guy. One time it was his wife, and they split, or they it, it was about five thousand dollars each. And now they're crossed the line as drug dealers. But they didn't like the way that felt, it was too dirty. So they decided instead they would supply an informant by the it was a female, as a matter of fact. Her name was Veronica Quesada. Her brother, Carlos Romero, was the second biggest drug dealer in Rampart. She started as an informant of Perez. He worked her into an informant, and eventually she became, and so did Carlos, their drug dealer, where they would supply them with quantity of narcotics that they would get out of property division, 
or during search warrants um, by Rampart detectives or narcotics. And uh, they would secrete this narcotics. They would generally set up a meet where a car would show up at the vicinity of Fifth and Westmoreland. They would put it in the trunk. They would close the trunk, walk away. Carlos and Veronica would drive the car away. Days later, it would show up, and there's their cut. They didn't do the dirty work of selling it. They just started to supply it. So that started the, all the machinations, how they became drug dealers. It got worse and worse. The second incident is the Ovando shooting. And this is the one that's going to blow up in everybody's face. And this also shows how quickly they can cross the line, come up with a solid shooting incident story, and how we buy it as supervisors because we trust our people. Mm-hmm. We don't suspect of anything. And as far as the, la- the facts su- support what they say happened, we will back them up 100%. So when I talk about this Ovando shooting, I generally, and I, of course, there's three versions to this shooting. There's the actual version that we thought happened because I rolled on it that night as a captain. Then there's the Perez Dernan version when they roll over a year apart. And then there's the actual gang member himself, Javier Ovando, who says, no, no, this is how it happened. So what happened, it, the official, of, of, official version very quickly, large cache of weapons is stolen in the city of Orange County. A Detective 3 who runs gangs comes to my office and says, we want to set up an OP to interdict these guns. Uh, or prove or disprove the rumor, because if it's true and we don't interdict the guns, it's going to arm a lot of 18th Street gang members in Rampart. So we want to put this thing to bed one way or the other. What's so an said, OP? You said an uh, OP. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's an operation point. It's an observation point. Okay. Uh, so so these guns were going to show up at a four-story apartment building at the vicinity of uh, 11th and Lake. This apartment building is a known hangout for 18th Street gang members. They control the building. Uh, they control the narcotic activity in and out of there. It's a hot spot. Uh, to set up the uh, ob- observation point, we happen to have an, uh, another four-story building, Kitty Corner. This one's abandoned. It's dicey in that 18th Street hangs out in this building. It's abandoned because it's being refurbished. Electricity has been turned off. We know it's a gang hangout because when you go into this building, the first thing you notice on the far wall in the lobby and three foot letters in red is the letters F-U-C-K, L-A-P-D. On the other corner of the wall is 187 L-A-P-D. 187 of the penal code is murder, kill cops. Hmm. We know prostitutes hang out at this building uh, and they turn tricks uh, during the course of which they're uh, uh, accosted by Gang members, they rob the prostitute, they rob the trick, they get their clothes, they throw it out the window. By the time the nude couple runs out into the street to get their clothes, the gang members are long gone. We know this is happening because the prostitutes tell us. But we want to use that building as the OP. So it's a little dicey. So Perez and Dearden are going to get a fourth-story kitchen window where they can see the entire intersection. We're going to have a backup unit for them close by, not so close that they will burn it, but close enough so that somebody comes in behind them, they could be as their backup in the building. And then all the other crash units are going to be nearby to swoop down if the guns show up. That's the setup. The first night, October 11th, Perez and Dearden trade off at that window for four hours. They're in uniform, like they're supposed to be. They work their way to that building to come in through the back about four blocks away where their black and white is set as spark. They bring folding chairs to have something to sit on. 
and they're watching the intersection. Nothing goes down those four hours of October the 11th. The second night, October 12th, it's about 11 o'clock at night. Perez has the point. He's watching the intersection. Darren is sitting in the living room, kind of minding his own business, when suddenly Dearden hears somebody on the fourth floor. Jordan is known to be extremely shaky, uh, very shaky, overreacts a lot of times. He's always spooked. Uh, he hears the footsteps, and he gets Perez's attention, snaps his fingers. It points to his ear, points to the door, the sign. He hears something. Jordan gets up from the folding chair. He's in uniform. He's left-handed. He approaches the front door at an angle while Perez gets up from the kitchen window comes to the kitchen doorway to enter the dining room when suddenly and unexpectedly the door busts open and in enters an 18-year-old 18th Street gang member by the name of Javier Ovando. He's armed with a semi-automatic weapon. He's crouched down low. He looks into the building. Jordan can't see him at first because he's of his position, but Perez sees him immediately, draws his weapon, Harry's position with Gun drawn, flashlight on the other hand. He hollers, gun, gun, gun. Tells Ovando, drop the gun. Jordan hears the order, doesn't see Ovando, draws his weapon. Ovando takes a step into the apartment, uh, doesn't stop. Jordan now sees him, hollers for him to drop his gun. As Ovando starts to turn towards Jordan with a semi-automatic, Jordan uh, fires one round from a distance about 12 feet, striking Ovando. Uh, Ovando then spins around. Perez sees him, drops, tells him to drop his gun again. Uh, all of this happens in a flash. He he winds up firing three rounds at Ovando. Uh, drop him, drops the weapon, end of shooting, help call, backup, RA unit, supervisor. We need help. The chase car is one of the first on the scene. They search cuff Ovando. The officers are taken to Rampart Station. They're put on ice. I roll on it that night. I'm out of my house within five minutes. Um, we do the walkthrough. I present that shooting to a use of force review board. Ovando survives the shooting. He is permanently paralyzed for the rest of his life. When I take that shooting to the use of force review board, remember, I've had 21 officer involved shootings in my three years at Rampart. From my perspective, based on the evidence, what we see, what the officers tell us, it's a perfect shooting. That's what I was going to say. It looks like a good shoot. Did Ovando know that they were in that? Uh, apartment before he walked in there, or was what was his reason for being there? Okay, that's part three. <laughs> oh, do you see? Dang, I can predict these things. You yeah. can, you can, and and what you just said right now, one assistant chief who sat on the use of force review board uh, almost said the same thing you said, word for word for word. And I described it the way I just described it right now is exactly the way I read it off the shooting review board. The statements that were made by Perez and Durden, the diagrams, the the everything. Ovando survived the shooting, by the way. He's permanently paralyzed for the rest of his life from the waist down. So I presented, it's this perfect shooting. It goes up to Chief Willie Williams. He approves it. He takes it to the police commission. They bless it. We put a bow on it. We set it aside. We walk away. We forget about it. Two years later, Rafael Perez rolls over. His, here's his version substantiated by Nino Jordan, separate and apart, and one year later, almost word for word. Perez said he's sitting at the kitchen window. He's got the point. He's watching the intersection. Jordan is sitting in the living room. 
when he said he didn't hear that from Dearden. So we made that up. Uh, he and by the way, the door didn't bust open either. They made that up. Uh, Dearden, he heard Dearden speaking and uh, using profanity. And he thought, what the heck is that? He jumped up from the kitchen window. But by the time he gets to the kitchen door, Dearden is at the front door of the apartment and it's open. But he can't see who's on the other side. And in a flash, Dearden utters the F word, steps back, draws his weapon and fires. Perez sees a shadowy figure standing at the front door, thinking it's a deadly threat. His partner has just fired an individual. That and the guy's still standing, he fires three times, just like he said. One twice, and he kind of assesses and fires a third time. Suspect is dropped. They light him up. He's unarmed. It's Ovando. His head is at the threshold of the door. They look at each other, they're panicked, they're frozen. They say nothing. Um, they think he's dead. He's paralyzed. He couldn't move if he wanted to. He's coming in and out of consciousness. Dearden then holds his hands up and like hold off to, to Perez. Perez says, I'm covering him. There are no broadcast, no call for help, no call for an RA unit, nothing. Dearden then actually leaves the apartment. He steps over Ovando and he disappears on the fourth floor. He runs up and down the fourth floor looking for witnesses or other suspects. He returns. He steps over Ovando, and he goes to his war bag. And out of his war bag, he pulls out a semi-automatic weapon that they had taken off the streets of Rampart three days before. Sheared, they, they took the serial number off of it so we could never draw it back up. The, the gun is, is wrapped in a red T-shirt, no prints. Dearden takes this, the T-shirt-clad revolver. He goes back to where Ovando probably would have been standing based on his body position. He crouches, holds the gun at chest level, like Ovando would have done, had he done the act, pulls the T-shirt, lets the gun drop naturally, falls back, catches himself, looks at Perez, nods. Help call goes up. Officer involved shooting. We need a help, help RA unit, supervisor. Here comes the posse. Here comes the car. Here comes the sergeant. Um, they accuse the sergeant of making up or help. He tells Perez, what happened? Tell me, quick. They go beyond the public safety statement that LAPD has. When an officer gets involved in a shooting, you cannot give any statement whatsoever other than what we call a public safety statement. The direction you fired your round and if there are any outstanding suspects. Short of that, you're removed from the scene, you're put on ice, you can't talk until you're brought back. Uh, Perez said that the sergeant asked him initially what happened. They go beyond that public safety. Before he could speak up, Dearden gave that version in front of everybody, short of he was unarmed. They said that if that sergeant knew that he was unarmed, he would have not only chopped our head off, he probably would have made sure we would get arrested. Uh, and that story remained all the way until it came into my hands, and that's how I presented it. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the unofficial version. Uh, Ovando, the gang member, has a third version. Ovando said that he lived in that apartment building. He was homeless. He was in that building the night before with another 18th Street gang member by the name of Macias. They sleep there. 
They went to the third floor to spend the night. Didn't realize the officers were in the building. Um, according to Ovando, they no sooner sat on the floor, started talking, joking. Two officers came in on them in uniform. They searched them, didn't cuff them. What are you guys doing here? They said, we sleep here. Uh, generally, we have no place else to sleep. They told me, get the hell out of there. They did. They said they left that building in a hurry. They claimed that the officers came behind them. They went one way. The officers went a different way. Second night, they came back. This is the night of the shooting. Didn't expect the officers to be there two nights in a row. They went to an upper floor. Don't remember if it was the same buildings. I mean, same floor or room. They no sooner sat on the floor when the same two officers came in on them. This time, they said those officers were very upset. They searched us. This time, they cuffed us. They started asking us about guns. Tell us about the guns. We don't know anything about any guns. Yes, you do. No, we don't. Uh, they released the buddy, Macias. They told him, get the hell out of here. He left. He ran out of there. He's leaving the building. He claims that Ovando's girlfriend was coming in right about that time. She said, where's Javier? He said, he's upstairs. The cops have him. They're pissed. Let's get out of here. She begged him to stay. She said, no, please wait for me. He reluctantly did. After several minutes, they heard gunshots. They panicked. They ran off. The Rampart Task Force found Macias in Mexico two years later, brought him back, got his version of what happened. Ovando claims that while cuffed and questioned, he doesn't speak English. He's confused. Notwithstanding, Perez speaks Spanish. He remembers guns being said repeatedly. He claims that they moved him near the threshold of a door while cuffed, and for no reason they shot him. He vaguely remembers being sat back up and shot again, passed out. That's all he remembers. Javier Ovando uh, was charged with two counts of attempt murder on a police officer. Uh, he was tried by judge. During his trial, Perez and Durden both testified as to the events that happened, like the official shooting version. Um, they claim that um, uh, they came across, rather, as compassionate, credible. After all, Ovando sitting there in a wheelchair. The prosecuting attorney and the judge would later say that there was absolutely no question as to their ver veracity. The defense attorney for Ovando claims that notwithstanding Ovando kept screaming and hollering to her in private that he was never armed. She claims that once she heard those two officers testify, she gave them the benefit of the doubt. Ovando was sentenced to 25 years to life. He spent two and a half years in prison until Perez rolled over and admitted that they had set him up and he was in jail. He was immediately released a week later. He won the single biggest lawsuit by a person in Los Angeles history, $15 million for that incident. Dang. Well, so. So now Perez and Jordan continue their machinations. They're yeah. in to their neck with what's happening. Uh, part of the look back at that shooting, you know, why would they lie? Why would they make up that story and all that kind of stuff? They felt that they screwed up, that if LAPD looked into that shooting, they already had crossed the line. They had already sold and stolen drugs. That that shooting, unless they come up with a damn good story, was going to take them down. And, and they, they came up with a good one. 
Yeah, no, I was listening to you talk, and I'm going, that sounds righteous. I mean, if you're listening to it, you're going, I mean, it sounds like... And they came up with it so fast, on the spot. But you know why? Because they were practiced liars. They they figured out a way to lie convincingly. But what you're saying, though, is they were more worried... I mean, they were going to get into some trouble for the shooting, obviously, because he's unarmed, but you could say, well, we thought he was armed. But what you were saying is that they were concerned that if they looked too deeply into the shooting, it would lead they would somebody would start following threads and it would lead into yes. all the other cases yes. and expose what happened. Exactly. Exactly. So so as we move forward, they continue with their machinations. They're now drug dealers. They're now uh, with intent. Um, when they, when I, I would uh, back then, I used my crash unit whenever we heard we had a high profile warrant we had to serve. Most of our warrants are big high profile warrants in Rampart back then were narcotic related. Either cases put together by my detectives or by the narcotic unit that worked out of Rampart trailers in the parking lot that I mentioned earlier. So we were always serving search warrants on headquarters of narcotic locations. And we always used our crash unit because they were tagged. Today, the consent decree has done away with all that. Um, Crash doesn't exist anymore. Whenever there's a search warrant in any LAPD command today, a lieutenant or above has to be present. And there's a lot of lines of communication that have to be approved when that search warrant is served. Back then, we used crash. Um, I didn't have to be there. A lieutenant didn't have to be there. Uh, They searched the location. Perez and Dearden always volunteered to search. They always started with the word we. We've got the bedroom. We've got the bathroom. They like to search bedroom, bathrooms, and garages. They did it as a unit together because one could loiter by the doorway. If they found contraband that they wanted or needed, and it fit in their pocket on the moment. They would pocket it, come out, said it's clean, nothing here. It was a large amount uh, between the mattresses of a bed and the toilet tank of a bathroom. They would come out and say it's clean, nothing here, with every intent to come back immediately. This had to fall in place for them. Um, They would generally volunteer to go on a food run. Crash did everything as a unit, rational division of labor. Typically, if we take down a location, and we start to search it, any officer that finds contraband is going to bring it to the officer sitting at the kitchen table. He's going to say, I found this. I'll mark it. It was in the bedroom, wherever it happened to be. When it cases, when the search is over with, we secure the location. Perez and Jordan would generally volunteer to search the back, secure the back door if they wanted to come back. Uh, I've got it. I'll secure it. They go back. They lock it. They unlock it. They lock it. They leave it unlocked. Um, as we're going back to the station, some book the arrestees, some book the evidence, some write the crime report, but somebody has to go on a food run. On the, on the spot, Perez and Jordan will say, we'll go on the food run. We got a so location near here that we can get one, two, three, four, five. That buys them time. If they get the food run, they're going to come back. If they don't get the food run, they're not going to come back. With the food run, 20 burgers, 20 fries, 20 uh, drinks, buys them time. Everybody leaves, crash, evidence, arrestees. They all go to Rampart Station. Perez and Jordan generally go the opposite way, go about three or four blocks. They sit. They wait for about five minutes. They return. They come in through the unlocked back door. Sometimes it's secure. They'll re-kick it. That won't stop them. This time they come in with their war bags. They get their contraband. They leave. Within days, Veronica or Carlos have it. They're selling it. They get their cut. They lost track of how many times they did that. So that was part of what they did. Right. 
that, that they lost track. So now fast forward. Um, I'm still at Rampart. I'm going on three years. My partner, Nick Salikos, uh, is going on six years. By the way, let me describe him for just a second. When he and I worked together, and I didn't know him, not even by facial recognition, when I first started at Rampart, he became my mentor. Uh, he was one of the most dedicated, selfless, hardest working, workaholic individuals I ever had the privilege of working with before or since. In that relationship, we commit, we, we commit, we, we had a bond that I've never had before or since. A trust, a love, uh, a connection. I could, there's nothing I couldn't tell him. There's nothing he couldn't tell me. We were that close. At the same time, Rampart took a toll on him. It affected his marriage. He had a bad back. He worked a lot of times in pain. He worked 15, 16, sometimes 17 hours a day. He went for a disability pension. I testified at his pension hearing. He deserved a pension, a disability pension. There was absolutely no doubt in my mind. During his last year at Rampart, he wanted to leave. He was constantly asking to be moved from Rampart. The stress, the pressure, the pain of his back. He walked, he looked like he was 80 years old by the time we were his, our last months together. He couldn't even straighten up. He walked hunched over. Um, there was a freeze of promotions during my last year and a half at Rampart. Uh, eventually, there was a chain of command. Parks became our chief. He started fast track, as I said before. Um, the freeze was lifted. And we were told that eight Captain Ones were going to be promoted to Captain Two. It was rumored that I was going to be one of the eight. By then, Nick and I, in commanding Rampart, from my perspective, were doing one hell of a job. If, fast, if Comstat had existed back then, we would have knocked people's socks off. We had double-digit reduction of violent crime all three years that I was there. We, our homicide rate went from 103 to 75 to under 40. We had the biggest gang injunction in the history of law enforcement. The first full year of the teeth of that injunction, we did a comparative analysis of 18th Street, the, the, the injuncted gang. We reduced violent crime by that gang during that third year by just under 70%. My first two years at Rampart, they alone committed 55 homicides. Um, we had a task force that was unprecedented. ATF, DEA, INS, before they were called ICE. FBI was just getting in the gang business. We were doing tremendous police work. Um, at the same time, Nick wanted to leave. At, like I said before, the promotionalist came out. I wasn't on it. I didn't get promoted. I still remember how disillusioned I was. I went to Nick. And I remember him telling me, Rich, keep your nose to the grind. Your day will come. Unbeknownst to him and I, the Rampart Task Force had already been created. Uh, Nick finally left, and I got a new partner. When Parks took over the, the command, the, the department, he changed the, he changed the responsibilities of the, of the divisions. He created what's called ideal area. I used to have patrol. The heart and soul of, the, of every command always went to the captain one. So he changed all of that 
and patrol went to the captain three, probably the way it should have been. So now I, I'm still at Rampart. I'm a captain one, and I have detectives, which I didn't have before. I have the crash unit still. I have drug. I have the special enforcement unit. I have the hype unit, which we created because of all the hotspots in Rampart. Um, and all the rest went to the captain three. Perez and Dearden returned from their six-month loan to the narcotic unit that worked out of Rampart trailers. They came back to crash because I now have vice. And what I'm leading up to now is how we took down Rafael Perez. Because I now have the vice unit as a direct report to me. There's an opening. Um, we're going to do a replacement of, the, of a vice officer. I start thinking, who do I want to put in vice uh, of the Rampart uh, resources that I have? One of the names that was whispered constantly in my ear was Nino Durden. And I agreed. I thought he'd make one hell of a vice cop. He'd been working crash almost three years. Uh, and now Perez and Durden have returned to crash. They still have 18th Street. They're still partners. In order to be apolitical for the oral interview, I bring in an outside lieutenant and two outside vice sergeants to conduct the oral interviews. Nino Durden will sink or swim on his own merits. He'll get no help from me. I'll be apolitical. He winds up knocking their socks up. He comes out in the top three. My, I have a new captain partner. We take that name to bureau. He gets selected. Nino Dearden now gets assigned Rampart Vice. For the first time in the better part of three years, he and Perez are split. Perez goes back to crash. Nino Dearden goes to Vice. Nino Dearden would later say that he held his breath. He never looked back. He told the line. He hoped to God the past would not catch up with him. Perez comes back. He starts doing all these different machinations. Example, when he was loaned to Rampart FES, there was a police officer three that at first was impressed with Perez and Jordan. He called Perez the natural. He said it was amazing. Every time they came in, they had dope, money, bodies in the holding tank, guns. He approached Perez. He said, I want to work with you. I want to learn from you. Perez shined him on. He said, uh, no, we never worked together. You're going to step on me. It's an officer safety issue. Uh, the answer is no. Nothing personal. It's no. After a few weeks, a few months, this P3 not only disliked, but he distrusted Perez and Jordan. He started challenging them because they violated, violated FES policy. What's uh, FES? Uh, field Enforcement Section. Okay. Uh, they're, they're a gang. They're a, they're a narcotic unit. They're assigned to narcotics. They're not a direct report to the, the, the captains in the division. Every eight LAPD division had an FES unit. I had a large one that worked out of trailers in the parking lot. Um, they scratched my back. I scratched their back. I would help them with search warrants. Perez and Dearden at one point worked that FES unit for six months. They were loaned there. The reason they stayed so long is they were tremendously effective. The downside of that is during that six-month period, they took a quantum leap as to how much narcotic they were able to get out of property division because they could now officially go to any division on LAPD, claim that they were doing a follow-up narcotic investigation, and that enabled them to have the right paperwork to go to property division and check out cocaine evidence. They mm -hmm. kind of went off the chart. During that assignment, a P3 that worked FES, that was the top producer and training officer, 
First, he challenged Rafael Perez and Nino Jordan. Uh, you're supposed to have a, 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 a supervisor president. You're supposed to wear a wire, things of that nature. Um, first person to actually challenge Perez and Jordan, they shined him on. The rest of the members of that unit kind of, uh, because Perez would eventually say to this P3, you know what? F off, man. This is my case. And they got the back, he got the backing of the other members of that unit saying like, you know what? Don't make waves. Just kind of back off. It's no big deal. Uh, he, back P3, by the way, left in disgust because the Detective 3 supervisor, every time when he finally went to him because he was reluctant to do it, uh, when he finally did, uh, the, the D3 would do nothing more than just kind of slap him on the wrist, the whole unit, you know, call me, I'm available time and time again. Come to find out that uh, he'd been compromised by Ralph Alperez and Nino Durden. He had a girlfriend that nobody knew about, came out during the Boards of Rights. Um, point is, is that the P3 that finally find, challenged Perez and Durden left in disgust and went back to Hollenbach Patrol. Perez and Durden, uh, during that time when they came back from FES, they went back to crash. Perez stayed in crash. Nino, Nino Durden went to, uh, to Vice. Uh, Perez continued his machinations. One time he checked out one and a half kilos of cocaine that if that fell through the cracks, the detective that would get the heat for that was Frank Liga because he didn't like what Frank Liga did to his buddy Kevin Gaines um, during that officer-involved incident. But Perez finally made a mistake. So this is how it all fell apart. Perez is in court kind of minding his own business. He's sitting behind two cops that are bragging about who made the biggest bust. One of those officers is an officer by the name of Joel Perez. Joel Perez is bragging about the fact that he at one point had made an arrest of a group that resulted in three kilos of cocaine being booked, 6.6 .6 pounds, street value of about $800,000. Perez takes a mental note. A few weeks later, don't know exact month of time, Perez winds up in property division, acting as if he's Joel Perez with all the right paperwork. He wants that evidence uh, for court, even though that case has been adjudicated. Our record systems were terrible. That's how they were able to beat the system back then. Um, he winds up getting in an argument with a record clerk because she's not moving fast enough to bring him his... Um, his uh, three kilos of cocaine. They argue back and forth. She goes back and forth to check. He finally gets it. He leaves. Um, he makes the switch. What they would do, by the way, I think I mentioned it, when they took this cocaine evidence out of property division, they would empty the contents and replace it with Bisquick or flour mm -hmm. and book it back in. Um, so this time he dropped the ball. He didn't bring it back in time. He panicked. He didn't know what to do. He was kind of immobilized. He was afraid that if you brought it back the next day, he would be asked for ID. Uh, why did you not return it in time? Uh, he pondered for three days. Uh, what should he do? What's the best thing to do? I'm told that the, he decided, leave it alone. Don't even come back. They probably won't find it missing. Unless a random off-the-wall audit is done, they won't find it missing. So he sat on it. Officer Joel Perez, the actual officer, started getting notices that, uh, where's the evidence that you took out? 
a random off the wall and it was done and they found it missing. So about four weeks go by. Officer Joel Perez gets some nasty notices. Bring back the narcotics you checked out or a personnel complaint will be initiated against you. Uh, he kind of round files that notice based on advice from his sergeant. They're all screwed up over there. They don't know what they're doing. So after six weeks, he gets the official notice. Personnel complaint has been initiated against you. Um, conduct on becoming an officer. He goes to property division. He's upset. Uh, he's complaining. He's ranting. He's raving. The clerk doesn't know what he's talking about. Goes to check, comes back, says, uh, Officer Joel Perez, yes. Serial number 12345, yes. Here's the receipt. You signed out for it six weeks ago. Joel Perez says, can I look at that? Um, he says, yes, you can. Perez says, well, that's my information, but that's not my writing. Somebody forged my name. He goes off again. Uh, clerk calms him down. Just so happens that the female clerk that was working six weeks prior is working in the back. He goes to her. Do you remember this? She says, yes. Uh, what's going on? Who's all screaming and hollering? He says, do me a favor. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Just go. You remember what this guy looks like? She says, yes, I do. He argued with me quite a bit. He says, go look. He's got a whatever color shirt on. She goes. She comes back. She's got a shocked look on her face. She says, that's not Joel Perez. The Joel Perez that checked this out six weeks ago is a light-complected back Puerto Rican officer. Uh, and I know a Puerto Rican accent. When I hear it, that rang the bell. Internal Affairs is notified. At this point, Internal Affairs does not know the depth and the breadth and the scope of what they're dealing with. The sergeant that was in charge of Internal Affairs surveillance back then recently retired as a Captain 3. I met with him. He tells me, I said, what, what was going on back then? What, what, what was your thoughts? He said, Rich, back then, we didn't know what the hell we were dealing with. Uh, so we did multiple things. We started 24-7 surveillance of Officer Ralph Joel Perez, uh, some some clerks that work uh, property division that do that transport narcotics to divisions. We did a background check on both civilian clerks. We did an audit of property division uh, narcotic evidence. At least we started. To our shock and dismay, he said, we found a couple of packages that when we opened them up didn't contain cocaine and contained flour or biscuit. After a few days, uh, they felt that they could approach the female clerk that originally checked it out to Ralph Perez. She had an impeccable record. She was not living above her means. She was a credible employee through a hunch of a lieutenant that was in charge of field enforcement section, which Perez worked prior to coming to Rampart. He worked it in Hollywood. He pulled his photo. Close as I can come to a light complexed black Puerto Rican kid. It's not going to be him. He's one of our best cops. Put it in a photo lineup. She pointed it. She said, that's him. He's now identified. They now start sur surveilling Ralph Al Perez for several weeks. He becomes hinky. Um, he realized that he's getting followed. Yeah, I was going to say, are you involved in it at this point then? Are you... All of this is uh, all of this is going out without my knowledge at all. Absolute rampart. All of this, all of these surveillances, Perez and everything, it is going on while I'm still the captain at Rampart. I never get contacted. I never get asked. The Rampart task force has already been created. 
Um, in fact, the commanding officer of the Rampart Task Force is a retired commander by the name of um, Schatz. He and I sat in the Board of Rights together for several weeks uh, leading up to this. He never gave me a clue that there was a Rampart Task Force. He later apologized. He said, we didn't know what we were dealing with at the time. So all this is going on unbeknownst to me. Perez is surveilled. Um, and finally, they decide they're going to take him down. August of 1998, my third month at Rampart. They've been watching him for just under three months, uh, since March, mid-March, I think. Or may, maybe, I'm sorry, May, May. I'm sorry, May, they've been watching him 24-7. Um, so now they're going to take him down. The way I find out about it, I have a captain partner by the name of Bob Hansen, Robert Hansen. He's retired. He's my third partner. Nick has already been moved. Uh, they obliged him. Uh, they moved him out of Rampart after one year of requesting. Um, and I am going through my third partner at Rampart. Bob calls me up out of the blue. He said, Rich, drop what you're doing. And I still remember those, the, the sound of his voice. He was like really, really keyed up. He said, I just left the chief's office. You can't believe what's going to go down. Meet me at my office. I'll be there in five minutes. Head there now. And I start questioning him, like, what's going on? What, are you okay? And he starts telling me, I don't want to talk about it on the phone. Get to my office. I'm almost there. I'll brief you when I'm there. And I asked a couple more questions. He hung up on me. I jump in my car. I'm a five-minute drive from Rampart uh, at my office at Third and Union. I, I, I still remember when I walked in his office, the look on his face, he's kind of pacing the floor. He looked at me, he told me to close the door to his office. I do. He looks at me and I still remember him looking at me and he said, have you ever heard of the Rampart Task Force? I said, what the hell is that? He said, they've been in existence for three months. I just got briefed. We're going to take down Ralph Al Perez. But when he said that, First thing I th uttered was the Bank of America robbery. It was a B of A robbery that involved his buddy, David Mack, that uh, I didn't get into. Uh, $722,000 was stolen. Happened November 6, 1997, the year before. One of the, uh, there was three that robbed the bank. Uh, David Mack was a very close uh, friend of Rafael Perez. Perez idolized Mack. Mack saved his life, according to Perez when they worked Hollywood FES together, there were three suspects. We didn't know who the other two were. Back then we were questioned, we being me and Nick about Ralph Perez being one of the three. Nick and I were two of his biggest defenders. No way, there's no way that kid's gonna get involved in a bank robbery with David Mack. So I said that to Hanson. I said, oh my God, was he involved in the Bank of America? Hanson tells me it has nothing to do with that. He's a drug dealer. I said, what, a drug dealer? I couldn't believe it. He said, he sells drugs, man. He's been stealing him out of narcotics division, property division. And uh, we're going to go take him down right now in your office. Jump back in your car. Let's go back. I'll brief you on the way back. As we speak, we know there's a, LAPD has a sophisticated surveillance unit called SIS, Special Enforcement Section. They have a reputation on LAPD. They follow nothing but violent criminals. They try to catch them in the act. They still exist to this day. They've been involved in numerous officer-involved shootings where they actually 
wind up shooting the suspect during the course of whatever they're following him for, robbers usually. Um, so when he tells me SIS is on Rafael Perez, I knew this is serious. So we shoot back to my office. When I get to my office, that's when I met Commander Chats, who apologized to me and said, Rich, we've been in existence, but we didn't know how to approach it. And we kept you out of this, uh, that they had been surveilling somebody under my command for that period of time. Uh, one of the OICs of SIS is a kid by the name of Jerry Brooks, D3, friend of mine. We go back many years. He comes up to me and he says, we need a favor, Rich. Perez has put on his uniform. He's out in the field. We're on him. Uh, can you use a ruse to bring him back to your office? We don't want to relieve him of duty in the streets of L.A. in uniform. We don't know how he's going to react. And we don't want to get in the possibility of getting in a shooting of an LAPD officer in uniform in the city of LA. And I said, oh my God, hold off. I'll take care of it. I'll get him here. Don't worry. Um, I went downstairs, talked to my sergeant in charge of my crash unit. Um, said, do you know where Ralph Al Perez is? As if I didn't know where he was. He said, yes, I do. I thought to myself, good, you know where your people are. I said, do me a favor, get him on the air. Have him come to my office. I got to talk to him. And I'm heading back to my office quickly as I can. He follows me. He said, what's it about? I trusted him. I wanted to be squeaky clean. I told him, you know what? It's personal. I didn't want Perez to accuse him of a tip-off in case something went sideways um, to protect him. I said, you know what? It's personal. I'll tell you later. Just uh, send him to my office. And he said, okay, I'll bring him up. I said, no, don't bring him up. Just send him up. Right now he's looking at me all kinds of funny ways. Shoot back to my office. Uh, he puts out the broadcast. We immediately make a plan in my office, we being myself, Bob Hansen, Dan Schatz, Jerry Brooks, got two SWAT guys in my office. We're going to let them take Perez's gun. We figure out how we're going to exit my office when Perez comes in so he'll be alone with the two SWAT guys. Within a matter of minutes, Perez pulls in. I hear him. I see him. You can see the driveway by my office window. Two minutes after that, there's a knock on my door. I open my door, and there stands Ralph L. Perez. We're in a Class A uniform, long sleeve shirt and a tie. Salutes. Sir, you want to see me, sir? That's the way he was. He was always very, very formal. Um, I told him, yes, step in my office. <clears throat> he was brought up by the sergeant. He's actually standing behind him, held him by his elbows, you know, holding him back like, what are you doing to my guy type of thing. Perez wasn't able to salute as a result of that. I tell the sergeant, let him in. Perez enters my office. Sergeant starts to enter. I push him out. I exit with him. Clear my outer office of my secretary and adjutant, just in case. Turn the corner. The other people exit that office through another side door that I have, leaving Perez alone with those two SWAT guys. Uh, within two minutes, I hear Hanson hollering at my voice, hollering my name. Hey, Rich. I turn around and look. He looks at me. He nods. I look at the sergeant from crash. I tell him, you know what? Get all the crash officers in the briefing room. I'll let you know what's going on. I go into my office, and there sits Ralph Al Perez. No badge, no gun. We relieved him of duty. We serve him with search warrants, personal car, city car. We have search warrants for all the crash lockers in the office. Uh, one week later, he's formally arrested. A week after he's arrested, I'm notified by Bureau that they're moving me from Rampart. I'm told it's not punitive. I need a change. I'm going to Central. 
I saw it as punitive. Um, I leave Rampart. I go to Central. Ralph Perez is arrested. He has a jury trial within four months. The Rampart scandal is disgraced Officer Ralph Perez. That's it. That's all we know. Um, we suspect maybe Nino Durden. He's being looked at. There's nothing to connect him with Perez uh, and the taking of that narcotics that he took uh, when they took him down. Uh, he has a jury trial. The only updates I'm getting as a captain and any other command officer in Rampart between August of 98 and December of 98, when he has his jury trial, is what we hear through the media. Uh, Perez testifies as his jury trial. He comes across as innocent. Uh, it's a hung jury, eight to four. Eight find him guilty, four um, can't decide. I'm told that the four that are on the jury that couldn't convict him were women. He's so charismatic that uh, I'm told later that they just couldn't convict him. In fact, I'm told that during jury selection, one woman actually recused herself. She actually stood up, pointed to Ralph Al Perez and said, I can't be on this jury. I think I'm falling in love with Officer Ralph Al Perez. They oh, recused geez. her. He stays as hung jury, stays in jail. Rampart uh, Task Force continues to investigate him. Um, a new jury is picked. A new trial is going to happen. It's September of 1999. It's 13 months later. During the course of that investigation, follow-up, they find 11 additional packages in property division that when they open them contain bisquick or flour, not cocaine. Mm -hmm. Doing a background investigation on him, they discover that he owns cars, property, banks account, bank accounts that he has no business being able to have or afford on a cop's salary. So now they really have him. Um, two days before that jury trial, through discovery of his attorney and through his attorney, two days before Perez says, time out, I want to work a deal. He rolls over and cops out to things, machinations, crossing the line that he and Nooner Durden had done. Um, it's felt that he's going to blow the lid off the Bank of America robbery, the David Mack uh, robbery, the Kevin Gaines, Frank Liga shooting, um, mm -hmm. on and on and on. Uh, they ask him about that. He says, I have no idea about any of that stuff. I want to talk about a 19-year-old street gang member by the name of Javier Ovando. He's in state prison. He's been there for two and a half years. My partner and I set him up, and he starts to admit to the machinations uh, perjury, throwdown, excessive use of force of a handful of crash cops. That blows up. That becomes the Rampart scandal. That's September of 1999. I get swept up with that. I get sent to a board of rights. I wind up getting a 20-day suspension. Um, so that's how the Rampart scandal blew up. Jordan rolls over a year after he does, substantiates everything Perez said the two of them did. When they ask him about the impropriety of other officers, he stops short of that and says, I have no information about any of that stuff. Let's let me kind of. Yeah, because we're getting to the close of this. Um, other than uh, um, 
the, the two officers, anybody else charged in Rampart criminally? Yes. Um, and, and again, and, and, and uh, that goes to the heart of uh, there were four officers that actually faced a criminal trial, high profile, 2000, all based on what Rafael Perez said. Uh, let, let me back up for a second. 72 officers were swept up with internal uh, complaints, relieved of duty, assigned to home. Um, a lot of controversy over that. The, the, the toll of Rampart, uh, loss of marriages, including my own, uh, loss of homes, suicides, including my, including my partner, Nick Salikos, um, one of my top sergeants in Rampart crash, Paul Burns, killed himself. Um, uh, so the, of those 72 officers that were relieved of duty, 58 of them were sent to a board of right. Of those 58 boards of rights, 34 were found not guilty, clean, um, not enough evidence, or based on what Perez said, not sufficient, not substantiated. 24 were found guilty. Of, of the 24 that were found guilty, seven officers resigned in lieu of. They knew they were going to be fired, not necessarily criminally prosecuted, but they would lose their pension. So they resigned in lieu of losing their pension. Five were flat out fired. Twelve were suspended. Hefty suspensions. They came back. By the way, many of those 12 that were suspended and came back rose from the ashes like the phoenix. One became an assistant chief. Some became captains, commanders, kind of proved themselves. The high-profile trial involved this, one of the top sergeants back then by the name of Eddie Ortiz and three other officers. Based on accusations by Perez, they faced a jury trial of false arrests, throw down guns. Um, and when the jury trial ended, three of them were found guilty. One was found not guilty. During the guilty phase proceedings of the penalty, the judge in charge of the trial, her name was O'Connor, she realized that she had given false instructions or erroneous instructions to the jury. So much so that she felt that the jury verdict was tainted. As a, re as a result, she wrote a large justification reversing the jury, the, the guilty verdicts, and ordered a new trial for all four of them, the three of them actually. Uh, and then by then, Cooley became DA of LA. As the district, he replaced Gil Garcetti. Uh, who was not reelected to a second term based on the whole the Rampart mess. Cooley looked into the evidence of the charges. Now we're into 1921, and he, based on his investigation by his investigators, decided that there was insufficient evidence and that Perez by now because boards of rights are falling apart, he's losing his credibility. He's already filed five um, um, polygraphs as, um, as, as uh, not telling the truth, that he decided not to file charges and he dismissed everything. Those four officers 
sued the city of LA for $20 million. They won $5 million each. They all came back to the job. The Sergeant Eddie Ortiz uh, retired um, as a Sergeant two in Hollenbeck. He got promoted. Uh, and that pretty much is the outcome. The boards of rights again reached a point where many uh, uh, chairman of the boards, it's a, like a tribunal. When the boards started, uh, said to the um, advocate who's putting on the case for the accused officer that if the only witness this the department has is Ralph Al Perez as to the accusations that this this officer or these officers are facing, uh, we are not going to proceed. Perez has no credibility with his board. Um, if the answer was yes, they didn't even hold the board of rights. Parks went beside himself. He got involved personally. Bernard Parks, the chief, he gave a direct order to those captains to hold the proceedings, that if they decided to decide not to hold the board, that he would charge them with insubordination. City attorney had to get involved personally to clear all that mess up. City attorney's opinion was that the board officers, those captains had the right to do that, and those cases were dismissed. So everything kind of started falling apart towards the end. So Parks tried to give them an order to to reach a conclusion or a finding. I mean, maybe they wouldn't have done it, but I mean, basically what you're saying is the city attorney could involved because it was, to him, it was clear that Parks did not have the authority to order the captains to do that. That's right. Uh, now, I'm, I'm captain. I'm still sitting on boards of rights. Uh, I was recused or I recused myself from any board of rights that involved a, a Rampart crash officer. If I found the officer guilty, it would be that I'm protecting myself. If I found not guilty, then uh, you know there was I was it was a lose lose. So I recused myself from any board of rights that involved um, an LAPD former crash or any LAPD former Rampart officer. Um, there was allegations made that during the boards pressure was brought to bear by the chief's office uh, on certain verdicts involving certain officers. Uh, I never experienced that. Uh, the, the closest I experienced that was for a captain, because there's usually two captains and a civilian as a tribunal that sit on boards of rights. I sat in over 150 of them. Um, and I won't take in a 20-day suspension. I, I sat on the other side. I know what that feels like. During boards that I sat on during that captain era, chief of police era, I sat with certain captains that would say something to the effect when we reached the time of adjudication and we found an officer guilty, where certain captains would say to me, uh, what does the chief want? Drove me through the roof. I said, it doesn't, I don't give a damn what the chief wants. What's the right verdict? What's our conclusion based on the evidence that we heard? Is this officer guilty or not guilty? So there was a lot of political pull and a lot of captains that were reluctant or didn't have the moral imperative. Uh, to right. go in the direction they should have gone. Well, Rich, let's close with a couple things here. What was it that they brought you up on charges on? Um, because, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to fathom is that they didn't even tell you it was going on. You hadn't been in Rampart that long. Um, what is it that they said that you did? Okay, let me let me give you the, the, the verdict on that and the, and the technical. It's very complicated. It, uh, it's very emotional for me even now. Um, it's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned in terms of leadership and moral imperative, um, how to deal with 
failure with dignity and respect and not be a victim. So here's the Reader's Digest version of what I was faced with. Um, during the course of my command of Rampart, before it blew up, um, and, and pressure was brought to bear in the Rampart Task Force and everything, um, I had an officer, we, I, we had a jailhouse beating that occurred, Nick, we being me and Nick. Uh, this occurred in February of 1998. Six months before Perez was taken down and arrested. Nick is still at Rampart. We're still working together. Uh, he's still asking to leave. Uh, I've already been bypassed on the promotional uh, uh, ladder. Um, and I, as far as I'm concerned and Nick is concerned, we're doing one hell of a good job in Rampart. Um, during the course of that time together, an 18th Street gang member by the name of Ishmael Jimenez is brought into Rampart Station by an officer by the name of Brian Hewitt. Brian Hewitt was on my radar. I didn't like him. I didn't trust him. Quite frankly, I was after him. He had a lot of personnel complaints, excessive use of force, conduct on becoming an officer. There was never, there was a lot of, there was a lot of smoke. There was never enough fire to actually take him down. I actually had a couple of watch commanders that said, you know what, I don't trust this guy. Um, I, I, had, I had taken him out of crash, as a matter of fact, um, and, he, and he was working uh, patrol. So we got a call off hours that from a watch commander who claimed that a kid by the name, by, by, a kid by the name of Ishmael Jimenez, his dad came to Rampart Station to make a complaint that our cops had beat him up and, um, and had kicked him out the door after they beat him up in Rampart Station interview room. He wound up going to Central Receiving Hospital. A friend took him and he said, Rampart cops beat me up. And, uh, and to the point where I was choked, I was hit in the stomach, and I threw up in the interview room. The watch commander who took the complaint went to that interview room and he found a wet spot that looked like vomit in the interview room. And he made the phone calls. He called Nick. Nick called me. Nick said, um, I said, we got to jump on this right now. The officer that was accused of doing it was Brian Hewitt. So I rolled to Rampart Station. I went into the interview room and I yellow taped immediately. And I said, I want that carpet drawn up. I want it analyzed. What is that wet spot? My mindset, to be honest with you at that point, was we knew that a lot of Rampart gang members complained against officers, and that was one way to get them off the street or to make them to back off. A lot of false complaints. So my mindset that is this kid is lying, notwithstanding how I felt about Brian Hewitt, I'm going to back him up 100%. Mm -hmm. If he's telling the truth, I'm not only going to discipline Brian Hewitt, I'm going to criminally prosecute him. The allegation is this kid was brought in sat in the interview room while, while handcuffed, C-clamped by Officer Hewitt. And to a point, almost to unconsciousness, and then would sleep camp him again, wind up hitting him in the gut a couple of times till he vomited. He then left the interview room, and I was told that another officer, who we didn't know who he was, came in, asked him, are you all right? Uh, you look sick? Released him from the cuffs, 
The kid said, am I under arrest? He told the officer said, let me check. I'll get you a glass of water. He left the interview room. He returned shortly thereafter with a glass of water, gave it to this kid and said, you're not under arrest. You're free to go. Follow me. This officer then took him to the front door of the substation, which was at Third and Union, where my headquarters were, told him, you're free to go. We'll see you later. Off he went. He was picked up by his buddy, went to Central Receiving. He was so upset, and that's when he made the complaint. So now we have the investigation. I'm there that night. I pulled up the carpet. And for the next several days, Nick and I are trying to figure out who is the officer that went in that interview room, gave them the water, took the cuffs off of him, and showed him the front door. At the same time, now Rampart hasn't exploded at this point. Bear that in mind. This is February of 1998. Internal Affairs is now calling uh, my bureau and saying, we want that case. We want to investigate it. Nick and I are united in telling our bureau chief, we don't want IA to take it. We want to clean our own house. If we have some dirty cops that are allowing this to happen, we want to clean it up ourselves, number one. Number two, we know that IA is so backlogged that the way they're going to handle this case is they're not going to do a damn thing with it probably for the next two, three months because it's still going to be in statute for a year. So we're begging our chief, don't let IA take it. We are already conducting an investigation. In fact, I've got a sergeant who's starting to interview people. But the big question is, who's the cop that walked in and kicked them out the front door? Um, it's not his partner, Brian Hewitt's partner, who's a kid named Lujan. And I know this kid, Lujan. So we're into day three of this investigation. And now the, the media leaks it out. Channel 4 News puts out the fact that an LAPD officer uh, put the boots, in essence, to an 18th Street gang member while in the custody of LAPD. Well, now that the media know about it, uh, the, the chief of internal affairs says, now we really want it because the media is now going to start knocking on our door. So we're fighting all this stuff. About the fourth day of this, about 5 p.m., I'm sitting in my office and a sergeant calls me, used to be my adjutant. Captain, you got a minute? I said, yes. He said, I got an officer that wants to talk to you. He said, it's very important. I said, I'll be here. Ring him. Officer brings him in. Sergeant does. And uh, it's a young officer. His last name is Cohan. And he walks in my office. And the first thing he says is he says, I'm the guy you've been looking for. I'm the guy that took the cuffs off of him. I kicked him loose. I've been off for four days, my first day back. Um, in essence, he said, I'm not here to defend Hewitt. I'm not saying he did it. I'm not saying he didn't do it. I don't like him. I don't get along with him. But that kid that he brought in, Ishmael Jimenez, is an informant. And I want to tell my story. And I said, be my guest. Little voice in the back of my head is telling me, you shouldn't let this kid talk. He's going to fall on his sword. He doesn't have a rep. I should warn him, admonish him, get him a rep, and then let him talk. But I just let him free flow. And he tells me this. He said, as you know, Cap, I'm part of a I'm a part of an uh, interagency task force uh, with ATF, DEA. This task force we put together. This kid, Ishmael Jimenez, is a DEA informant. 
and he knows about guns. And he put the word out that he has information about guns in Rampart. And I told the crash or any officer that I knew, if you see Ishmael Jimenez and everybody knows him, bring him to Rampart Station. I want to talk to him about guns. He said, the next thing I know, Brian Hewitt is tapping me on the shoulder. And he says, your guy Jimenez is in the holding tank. What do you want me to do with him? And I said, great, let me go talk to him. Hewitt Cohan tells me, I walk into the interview room. He's cuffed. He looks sick. I asked him, are you okay? He said, I'm not feeling well. Um, he said, I asked him, do you have anything about any guns? He said, I don't know anything about any guns. Uh, am I under arrest? Now, he's telling me stuff I already know. And he's consistent with what I already know. Cohan is. And Cohan says, I don't know. Let me find out. I'm going to get you a glass of water. I'll be right back. Cohan said, I go to Hewitt. I asked Hewitt, what's he here for? He said, I brought him in for you. Gun information. He said, you got him for anything else? He said, no, that's it. He said, can I kick him loose? He said, whatever you want to do with him. He said, I didn't go back, uncuff him. I tell him, you know what? You're free to go. I took him to the front door. I'm not going to take him back to MacArthur Park. He's an informant. They're going to say, why are you back? I'm protecting him now. I told him, you're free to go. He left. That's it. We talked for about 20 minutes. And I'm questioning him a little bit more. He starts repeating himself. At that point, I tell him, you said enough. I probably let you tell me too much. I'm ordering you not to discuss this with anybody else. And I look at the sergeant that's sitting there. He's nodding his head. I said, you're going to go on the complaint, either as an accused or as a wit. I don't know yet. We're going to interview you very quickly, very shortly. Get a rep. We'll let you contact. We'll con con contact you. You did the right thing coming to me. Anything else you want to tell me? He says no. Um, and he left. I pick up the phone. I call up Nick. I said, guess what? Nick says, what? I said, Nathan Cohan just came in. He's the guy we've been looking for. One, two, three, four, five. Nick said, well, guess what else? I said, what else? He said, we lost the investigation. IA has it. We're, we're wrapping it up. Um, they're coming for it tomorrow. Forget about it. We're no longer investigating it. And I said, Dan, and I was upset. So was Nick. I said, how are we going to put him on the report? I said, he'll soon go as a whip. But don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. So that's all I know up to that point. Months go by. Now we're into September. Perez has been, has been arrested. I'm now in Central. I'm sitting there as a captain of Central. I'm no longer in Rampart. The, RASP, the Rampart task force comes, pays me a visit. Dan Schatz, the commander. They sit in my office. Commander Schatz, a sergeant from Internal Affairs, two Detective Threes from Robbery Homicide Division, who are part of the Rampart Task Force, we have a discussion. What's your thoughts on Ralph Al Perez? What do you think about that? And my, we get into a blah, blah, blah. I'm shocked. He was my go-to guy. I never thought about it. And then they said, okay, let's talk about Ishmael Jimenez. And I said, who's that? He said, he's the kid that came in that, uh, remember the kid that was in it? And I said, yeah, I remember. And the IA guy looks at me and he says, well, Captain Mraz, we haven't done a damn thing with that investigation. And I immediately get upset. It's, it's September, right? 
This went down in February, March, April, May, June, July, seven months. He said, this case, if there is misconduct, we've only got two months left on this thing. Uh, so uh, we're going to look into it. We'll adjudicate it. Don't worry about it. Blah, 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 whatever it happens to be. Uh, and that's the last I hear of it. They all leave. I remain as a captain. I'm making a long story short, aren't I? So now go all the way back. <laughs> now go forward to 1999. Perez, um, oh, by the way, uh, Perez is being investigated. Uh, I get called by Internal Affairs. This is about maybe three, four months later, like December. And they said, Captain Moraz, this is Brian Hohan. Uh, this is Detective Hohan from Internal Affairs. I'm part of the Rampart Task Force. Um, you're an accused. I said, I'm an accused. Accused of what? He said, you're accused of misconduct. I said, what do you mean? What did I do wrong? And they said, well, it has to do with the Ishmael Jimenez investigation. Remember that? Cohan, officer came in your office. I said, yeah, what, what did I do wrong? And he says, to be honest with you, Captain, I don't know, but the chief wants me to interview you. Um, and they want me to ask you about your meeting with Cohan. And I said, well, okay, it's not going to be very long. I said, as a, he says, as a matter of fact, Cap, do you remember talking to the Rampart Task Force about what you did or didn't do back in September of 1998? And I said, uh, or a few minutes back, and I said, yeah, I do remember. He said, well, they want us to ask you about that, but they told me to tell you to get a rep. You're accused. And I said, well, what did I do wrong? He said, I don't know. So I said, well, let's pick a date. I run down the hallway to my chief, and I said, do you know I'm accused with a, and she's upset. And she said, let me look into this. What do you mean you're accused? I'm the, so bottom line is now I get interviewed. What happened? He came to my office. We talked for 20 minutes. Um, he was the guy that took the cuffs off. Blah, 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 blah. He said, okay, are we done? Yes, we're done. So I said, so we're off the record? He said, yeah. I said, so, so what did I do wrong? He said, I don't know, but we'll keep you posted. So now I'm in the Central, and now it's 1999, right? Perez hasn't rolled over yet. So bear in mind, just follow me on this. It's, this is going to be a crazy story. So on March of 1999, March, April of 1999, the captain that is my partner at Central, his name is Stu Maislin, he comes in and he says, hey, Rich, do you know you have a personnel complaint? And I said, another one? And he says, no, a uh, 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 Cohan, the cop you handled. And I said, oh, my God, is that, that hasn't been a what did I do wrong? He said, I don't know, but Bureau just called me and they want to pick my brain. Uh, what, what should I tell him? I said, tell him the truth. You know, he said, well, what happened? So now I tell the same story I just told you about Cohen coming to my office and all that stuff. He said, well, I don't see any misconduct, but let me find out. So he comes back a few days later and he said, I told Bureau that as far as I'm concerned, you didn't do anything wrong. And they laughed and they said, well, we got to do something with this thing. And I said, OK, well, thank you very much. Forgot about it. So now fast forward and it's um, it's August 1999. And I'm sitting there. I'm sorry. It's September 1999. And I get a phone call from Bureau. 
the lieutenant, and he says, Captain Moraz, we got a complaint here uh, with your name on it, and we got to we got to skelly you. And and I said, so what's what's the disposition of it? I've been called so many times on this thing, and they said, well, here's the technical part of it. If you committed misconduct, the department became aware of it on that September day last year when Commander Schatz came into your office and asked you about it. And we now have to adjudicate and close this case out before September the 16th, or it's out of statute. And even if you did not commit misconduct, if we don't close it out by then, my chief is going to get slapped on the wrist for letting a complaint last so long. And we all laughed about it. So we want to get it out of our hair. And I said, so what did I do wrong? And they said, I don't, you didn't do anything wrong, Rich. We just want to get this out of here. But we have to interview you and serve you and sign it by 5 p.m. September 16th, or it's out of statute. Um, we want to do it before then. So we looked at our calendars and I and the only day that came up was guess what? September 16th. And they said, we'll do it. And then he told me, I remember he said, you better not drop dead. You better not get sick. You better be at work. Otherwise, Chief Burke is going to be all over me. I said, don't worry about it. Forgot about it. <laughs> September 16th is Mexican Independence Day. Alvera Street is a central division. We shut down the street. We celebrate. In fact, on September 15th, we have what's called El Glito. It's a huge Mexican celebration. Big command post. I'm the executive officer of the command post. So come September 15th, the big celebration, um, I'm working with Stu Maislin, and I'm working Parker Center. And all of a sudden, I look at, uh, at Maislin, and I said, what do you see over there? over the other side of the parking lot, we see all these media antennas. And we said, well, the media must be here to really cover this celebration. And he said, they sure are. And then the next thing we notice, the command staff of who's who of LAPD starts pulling into the back of Parker Center. They all start parking their cars. All the brass starts getting out. And I look at all of them, we said, what the heck is going on? The media's here. The LAPD, who's who, is showing up. And then the next thing I notice is at the far end of the parking lot, a lot of former Rampart cops start showing up. Some in uniform, some on duty, Eddie Ortiz. They look at me. I look at them. They give me the what's up sign. I look at them like, I don't know. They all go in the back of Parker Center. And last but not least, Chief Burke shows up. Burke, my chief. He's late. He parks. He gets out of his car. I look at him. We run to him. We said, what's going on? And he said, they're calling it the biggest scandal in the history of LAPD. Park's going to hold a press conference. He's walking backwards. I'm trying to keep up with him. I said, so what is it? He said, I don't know. But, but, but the conference is going to start. I got I to gotta get up there. So I'll see you later. As he turns the corner, I holler at him. I said, well, what's it about? And he, and he sticks his head back. I swear to God, sound like a, he said, Rampart. And I said, what Rampart? And he sticks his head back and he looks at me and he points to me and he says, when you were there. I said, when I was there, 
And he said, but I got to go. And he leaves. So I look at Stu Mason and I said, I'm going up there. And Stu said, no, 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 don't go. If it's, it's, if it's when you were there, you don't want to be there. We'll send somebody. We'll send a scout. <laughs> so here's this police officer taking a break from the command post, reading the sports section, sitting on a chair. I go up to him. I grab his newspaper. I said, mijo, I got a mission for you. He said, what is it, Cap? I said, you know where 618 is? He said, that's the chief's conference room. I said, right. Your mission is to go there, be a little fly on the wall, come back, tell me what goes on. He said, yes, sir. And, he, and he's gone. And I'm pacing. And I thought, man, I got to go up there. And Stu said, don't. We'll find out. And here comes that poor police officer. He comes up to us. He says, I still remember. He said, who is Javier Ovando? I said, Javier Ovando? It sounds familiar. Um, he said, officer involved shooting. Now, that was the perfect shooting. It was the least from my mind. I had other ugly shootings, I remember. He said, he's paralyzed. Well, come to find out, make a long story short, that's the day Bernard Parks told the world that Rafael Perez had rolled over. A video is shown that evening in the evening news of Javier Ovando in a wheelchair at LAX coming off a plane released from prison. That evening, all over the news is Rampart scandal. The next morning in the LA Times headlines is the Rampart scandal, disgraced officer Rafael Perez rolling over. Are my Blackberries going off that night? Drop what you're doing. Everybody report to where Comstat is held. Call it fast track back then. 9 a.m., no exceptions. If you're on vacation, it doesn't matter unless you're out of town or out of the state, you shall report 9 a.m. at the meeting. And I still remember Stu Mason looking at me and he said, Rich, tomorrow they're going to scale you for that complaint you said don't worry about. He said, it's a whole new ballgame. And I thought, no. And the next day I was there at 9 a.m. in a uniform with all the command officers standing room only. And I swear to God, I'm standing against the wall because I was a little bit late. And um, the chief starts to brief us on Rafael Perez. And I still remember I'm writing notes and I'm in a state of shock. And I remember the chief looking at me at one point and he pointed right at me and he said, no note taking, put that away. And I said, yes, sir. Embarrassed? Worse, the two captains that were either, either side of me suddenly realized that they were standing next to me. And they slowly and silently backed away from me, oh, left me alone. And wrong. the next morning, the next that 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 afternoon, I'm calling my chief Berg, and we have a meet. We have our meeting is at three forty-five. And I remember, I walked in his office and I sat down, and he said, "Rich, I'm going to scale you on this complaint, and I have in times of the essence." He said, "I'm giving it to you. You got to sign it." And I got to run with it to Parker Center so Parks can sign it because it has to be time stamped by 5 p.m. If it's not, it's out of statute. And I don't want this one to get away. And I said, yes, sir. He said, here's your copy. I'm sustaining it. That means I, that means I committed misconduct. I said, what did I do wrong, Cap, uh, Chief? You're sustaining it? He said, 
you should have listened to that officer when he came into your office. I said, what do you mean? I should, I listened to him. I probably talked to him for 30 minutes. And he said, you talked to him for 30 minutes? I said, yeah. Uh, he started repeating himself. And he said, well, the report doesn't say how long you talked to him. I said, nobody asked me. What, what do you think I did? He said, the impression is you kicked him out of your office. I said, I didn't kick him out of my office. We talked. And he said, well, 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 forget it. We don't have time to discuss this. I'm giving you an official reprimand. It's just a paper penalty. No big deal. Slap on the wrist. Here's your copy. I got a doctor's appointment. He's got the full body scan. He said, and I got to get this to Parker Center so Parkson signed it. Here's your copy. I'm gone. Thank you very much. And he left. I'm sitting there looking at the report. Shocked. I remember backing up, walking back to my office. Now, here's one of the technical parts. One of the things that we were failing to do because Parks changed the complaint system is that when you change an, an adjudication on the complaint on the front page, you got to remember to change the back page and it's got to jive with the front page. And as I'm walking, I'm thinking it says official reprimand sustained. And I remember the back page. I flipped all the way to the back page and the back page said exonerated, no misconduct. They forgot to change the front page. By the wow. time I sit down in my office, my phone's ringing. It's the captain of internal affairs, Sergio Diaz, very good friend of mine, recently retired as chief of police of Riverside. He's captain of internal affairs. He said, Rich, drop what you're doing. I got to get back to you. Parks has your complaint. He changed the penalty. I got to reserve you. We've only got till 5 p.m. I'm out the door. I'm coming with Lieutenant, the Lieutenant Ad Advocate of Internal Affairs. He said, I got the new complaint. You got to sign it. I got to serve you. I got to get back to Parks. And he's got to get it down to a, a police commissioner by 5 p.m. And I said, I'll be here waiting for you, Sergio. I remember looking at my watch. It was 4.15. For a split second, I thought, maybe if I hide in the closet for 45 <laughs> minutes. But I couldn't do that. Okay, what happened to me was I uh, Park made it a 20-day suspension. Um, he, he raised it to 20 days. Um, I decided that I'm going to take it to a board of rights. Um, I said, I want to pick a board. I am taking it. I am not guilty. I'm going to fight this. Notwithstanding, friends of mine said, don't do it, Rich. They're coming after you. When you're they, they may wind up firing you. I took it to the board. They found me not guilty. It was a media circus, standing room only. They found me not guilty of that one count. But they accused me of three administrative errors that I made. Uh, that was the wrong thing to do. I could have won that case. They wound up still giving me a 20-day suspension. Um, I decided after about four days, I'm not going to appeal this. I, uh, I took a 20-day non-paid vacation. I came back. Um, I continued with my career. I wore a classy uniform for the next the rest of my career. Um, and uh, I was able to deal with it from my own perspective, uh, with dignity and respect. And uh, I remained until May 30th, 2007, and subsequently retired after that uh, as a captain in Southeast Division. Well, and Rich, just to kind of close this up too, I mean, and you have spent a lot of your time, you teach on this right. case itself, you teach leadership to other people to help prevent this kind of thing from happening at other departments and other law enforcement agencies, yes. right? Yes, I, I, um, I, I stick, I stuck with it when Br Bratton became chief. Quite frankly, 
Um, I, yeah, I, I met with him. I sat with him. He asked me questions. He took me out of the panel. He promoted me to captain two, uh, October while I was at uh, Northeast. Um, as a captain two, I took over three different commands at the end with my last 14 months on the job. Bratton called me in his office. He told me he had a rampart brewing in Southeast. He could send any captain. He had 62 to pick from. Um, he heard, he said, I know all about rampart. Um, I'm promoting you to captain three. I broke down emotionally by that point. He gave me an opportunity to win back my dignity. He said, you have carte blanche to do whatever you want at Southeast. Go clean it up as a captain three. I did. Um, it almost killed me. I did some crazy stuff while I was there. We turned that division around. I retired as a captain three, and I think I did one hell of a job at Southeast. It certainly well, sounds like And that's how I ended my career. The well, captain one that was with me today is an assistant chief on LAPD. We still joke about it. You trained we him well. Well, look, what you did is you you did exactly what you said. You lament the fact that you couldn't do, but you actually did that, not at Rampart, but you did it at Southeast. But you had a chance to show the way you wanted to lead, the way it could be done. And you came in and turned things around. So you've got nothing to apologize for. No. You know, it, you, you know, you and look, Murph and I have always said, and Murph says it better too. What do you always say, Murph? Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. Hmm. That's right. You it's know, so right. Thank you. Well, Thank no, you. and it, it's it's tough to take the slings and arrows to be the first one out there to be the pioneers, and you're taking all the arrows in your back. Yeah. But if you don't do this, if you don't lead this, then we end up with the profession that is in some of these countries, like you talked about, where they say, "Ah, we'll take them down to the river. We'll do this." We don't do things that way. This is the United States of America, you know, and to your point, we have a constitution, we have a bill of rights, we have, you know, the first, second, third, fourth, you name all the amendments, everything that applies to these cases. That's not something we do. And you, out of all the people we've talked to, I mean, it it, it took a toll on you. I mean, you inflicted a lot of battle damage, as Jay Dobbins said, you know, on your family and stuff. But for you to stick through and make this right, I mean, this is us saluting you, sir, saying thank you. For a job well done, you got nothing to be ashamed of and everything to be proud of. It's been a it's been a real honor for you to come on here, and I know this can't be easy. But you're being raw, you're being transparent, you're telling you know nobody wants to tell about their shortcomings, and and sounds to me like you got railroaded. So it's been a real honor for you to be on here, and for our listeners that say, hey, you guys never talk about the bad side of cops. We just did. We're not trying to gloss over anything. When, just like we say over and over, I just said it. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. A bad cop needs to be served more time than any criminal that's out there because you've betrayed the public's trust. So God bless you, Rich, for coming on here. Thank you. I don't know how much, you did brother. it, man, but hey, I can Thank see you man. so much. Thank you. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Steve. I love you guys. Um, this, uh, thank you for giving me Same this opportunity. Brother. Hey, brother. To me. Thank you. Hey, well, everybody, stay tuned for the debrief. Well, hey, players and playwrights, thanks for hanging in there with us. That was a, a long episode, but it was long for a variety of reasons. First of all, you just got to admire Rich Moraz and the shit he went through, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the attitude he still has to today and how much it, it hurt him, you know, for this stuff to go on. Um, but, you know, he was he's authentic about it. He told us about what happened to him. He told us about what happened there. And I thought, Steve, one of the things he talked about, this continuum of compromise, it's it, the, uh, people started initially for doing it for the right reasons. They wanted to make their compute community safe. But then little by little, 
cut by cut. You mm-hmm, know, people mm-hmm. crossed the line so far that there was no going back. You know, and the fact is, Rich could have gotten very bitter about what happened in the end because he was somewhat railroaded. Now, you know, he was a captain there in the, in the Rampart Division. And, you know, it, we all like to say that the shit rolls downhill, but, uh, you know, you got to look at your leadership. But for him to continue doing and now teaching lessons from lessons learned during that fiasco out there, I just got to take my hats off to him and, and my hat hats. Yeah, I probably need hats because of my bald head. But <laughs> um, his his dedication to still trying to help police officers, to help the public, that's what cops are. And you heard him getting emotional on this on that interview. Yep. That's because these are this is our lives. I mean, that you've heard several of our guests get emotional on here. It's because we really believe in what we do. That's one of the reasons. I mean, Morgan and I love doing a podcast because it's fun. But what we really love is we get the opportunity to bring you the heroic stories. These are true heroes. It's not one of these. These aren't people that show up for work and get a trophy just because they came to work. These are true heroes. There are no participation trophies in law enforcement. I mean, you got to oh, no. go out and you got to do the work. Typically, <laughs> typically you don't get recognized for crap. You get recognized for all the bad stuff. Yeah, I, I told you my story. I seized. I had the largest cash seizure in the state of Kansas at the time. Mm-hmm. You know who made it on the front page of the paper? Oh yeah, the chief and the detective sergeant. <laughs> while I'm back writing up the reports, man. <laughs> Anyway, we digress. Well, hopefully you guys liked that episode. We got some really good ones coming up too. Like I said, we've got a whole slate of new stuff, really great stuff coming up. But if you like it, go to Apple, go to Spotify, hit that five stars. Tell us that you liked it. It's magic. We don't know exactly how it works. It's like Magic Kingdom. We just know that it does. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We will be updating our merch. We've got books, our book list there. So a lot of the books from our current guests and future guests are going to be on there. So make sure you do that. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast.com or paypal.me, Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. But I'll tell you, Got to get on Patreon, man. What, what, you know, we released that episode by the time you guys are hearing this. We put the episode uh, 911, What's Your Emergency, out, and we went through the 911 call. And we've actually had a lot of people say, I learned a lot of stuff. It's, you know, murder is not fun, guys. And we're not doing this. Uh, we're not doing this to put profit off the misery of others. What we're doing is we're showing you how investigations work. And the first thing, what's one of the first things that you normally have that starts off an investigation? 911 call. Right. And just like Morgan said, I don't know about these until we hear them when we're doing the recording. So join me and test out your sleuth skills. See how good of a, of a well, hell, Murph, I could play the, I could play the recording the day after and the day after, and it'd always be new to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? Huh? Anyway. Huh? <laughs> hey, well, guys, hopefully you enjoyed that. And guys, we love having you guys on. We love the comments that you give us. So, you know, keep going in there. Keep sending us your stories for Small Town Police Blotter uh, next week is going to be Valentine's. We got a special episode coming up. We're not going to go into it right now, but it is it is uh, it, it's one that's going to pull at your heartstrings and it is the anniversary of the shooting um when we talk to Victor Avila from ICE next week. So, until then guys, thank you once again players and playerettes for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. <laughs> <laughs>